If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the spring and summer of 1945, a British civilian and military force arrived in Germany, tasked with building a democracy from the ruins of war. As Daniel Cowling describes in his new book, Don't Let's Be Beastly to the Germans, it was an undertaking that encountered enormous scepticism from both Germans and Britons. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizen, Daniel describes how the occupiers met this formidable challenge. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. So, it's the spring and summer of 1945. The Second World War has come to an end and into Germany start arriving thousands of British soldiers and civilians tasked with overseeing the occupation of the northern and northwestern segment of what was a shattered nation. So my first question is, what were they doing now? What was the purpose of the British occupation of Germany after the Second World War? It's a good question, and I think one that lots of people at the time had different answers to. I suppose the official answer to it in lots of ways was decided right at the end of the war. So there was the Potsdam Conference in the summer of 1945, where basically all the main representatives of the British, American and the the Soviet governments met in Potsdam in the palace, in the Sicilian Hof Palace, 
on the outskirts of Berlin. And they basically tried to come up with a plan for the future of Europe and what Germany and, and the rest of Europe would look like. And I suppose the best way to sort of summarise what they came up with was known as the four Ds. So there are the conceits of demilitarization, which was kind of pretty uncontroversial, you know, get rid of weaponry and, and kind of basically make Germany a, a nation that could no longer go to war. And then it was denazification, which was exactly what it says on the tin, but a little bit more complicated than that. I mean, essentially kind of instigating things like war crimes trials and trying to do things which would, you know, get rid of Nazism from Germany and, and stop any risk that it might return. Uh, and then there was deindustrialization, which was perhaps one of the more complicated aspects of what the occupation was intending to do. It, it sort of looked to kind of try and restrict and, and slightly change the nature of the German economy to try and inhibit any kind of war production and essentially, again, you know, protect against any kind of return to a you know, warlike nation that, that many people saw it as. And then finally, it was democratization. And this was kind of the probably the long-term plan or the long-term goal, which was to, to kind of create a democratic nation. But quite exactly what that meant and what the means were there to get to that were quite contested, as you can imagine, between the, the three main allies at the end of the war. To make this clear, so Britain wasn't occupying Germany in its entirety, was it? So it was divided up, am I right, it was into four sections, with Britain having the north and northwestern segment. Can you look, explain how that worked, please? Yeah, sure. So it wasn't quite a done deal until quite towards the end of the war. One, that there would be four of the Allies that would be involved. So it was only at Potsdam that the rest of the Allies agreed that the French could take a part of Germany under occupation. And yeah, as you say, it was decided then also to split the country into four. And the British took the, the northwest zone, and which included cities like Hamburg and Cologne. And in lots of ways, that was seen as a bit of a jewel in the crown of Germany, because this was kind of the historic Ruhr region where much of Germany's industry had developed and it was kind of seen as this kind of, you know, the, the centre of the German economy. Of course, in 1945, the reality was, was quite different. This was the area that had been most heavily bombed during the war, uh, and it was really a very, very war-torn part of the country. But yeah, as you say, all the different allies, the Soviets in the east, the Americans in the, the south-southwest, and the French in the very far southwest on, on the border with France, took their own zones. And then in Berlin itself, which was kind of uh, where the Allied Control Council sat, which was kind of like a proxy government for overseeing federal nationwide decisions amongst the Allies in occupation, that was divided into sectors, which is why, you know, eventually you get this division of Berlin with the Berlin Wall in the 60s and that sort of thing. Now, as you said, though, the area was really heavily bombed during the war. Could you go into a little bit more detail on that? I mean, what what were conditions like on you know, on the ground level when the British civilians and soldiers started arriving in the final months of the war and in the immediate post-war period? I mean, a lot of the research I did for the book was trying to go in through people's personal papers and letters and diaries and trying to get a real flavour for what this was like as a sort of lived experience as much as a sort of political and you know military history. And for lots of people, you, you see that this was really quite an overwhelming experience. I mean, of course, it was for both those who were on the ground, but just for the British soldiers and civilians who were sort of turning up to this situation – you know, some of the cities and towns were just completely devastated. You know, housing stock had been destroyed. You know, maybe 50, 60, 70 percent of houses have completely disappeared. Almost all utilities have gone. There's no access to kind of the basic necessities of life. You know, there's a, there's a good quote from one of the British administrators who turns up and, and basically says, you know, everything's at a standstill. You know, everywhere you go, there is just nothing's happening, nothing's working. And one of the common uh, sort of illusions that some of the British soldiers and civilians make at this point is this kind of 
reflection of this is almost like ancient civilization. So there's a few different people I came across that saw that this is reminiscent of Pompeii, you know, some sort of long lost civilization that's been destroyed to a, a level in which we can't really comprehend what this is anymore. And this seems kind of, you know, quite remarkable now when we think to Germany in the present state as a very kind of modern, you know, developed country. But it was really in a, a very, very uh, difficult state in, in that summer of 1945. So what kind of people were appointed to go over there and try and get this economy back up and running? I mean, obviously there were soldiers and civilians. What were they tasked with in those early weeks and months? The occupation from the British was uh, divided into two, and it was the British Army of the Rhine. There was also other military units, as does the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy had their own kind of contingents. But the British Army of the Rhine was kind of the main force of soldiers that were there. And there were around 200,000 or so in those first year or so. And they were basically there on security grounds. But they ended up being involved in a lot more than simply security guns, but they were essentially there to sort of stop any revival of Nazism, any kind of fears of a guerrilla warfare and things like that from unrepentant Nazis. It was the Control Commission for Germany, which was the civilian force, which were sent over there basically kind of in the mould of a government. They looked like a kind of quasi-civil service, uh, and they had all the different sort of divisions from sort of agriculture and farming to prisons of war and all sorts of things you would expect of a, a modern state to have different sort of departments. And the personnel that made it up were very much a mix of experts. So, that, you know, the, one of the good examples is the North German Coal Control, which was kind of the official body that took over the German coal mines, and it was British-led. And a large number of the people that were in charge of that were basically just brought over from mines in the northeast and various parts of the UK because they had the expertise of, you know, how to run mines and how to run that part of the country. But many of the other people that came over were either soldiers who'd been demobilized and transferred into to a civilian job, which this was, or, you know, new recruits from Britain, maybe people that were young that hadn't necessarily had a part in the war effort per se in terms of being on the front lines. Maybe even some of them hadn't had any really role because they were, they were so young. And they wanted to sort of do their bit and take part in a kind of, you know, part of the rebuilding of the world, basically. And that meant actually as well, there was large numbers of women that went over from, from Britain. And that's a particularly interesting part of the, the story in lots of ways. Their experiences of going over as a woman and having kind of, you know, the background of the sort of expectations, the gendered expectations of them in Britain at the time and then when they go over to Germany those expectations don't necessarily go away but they find themselves in a slightly sort of higher social status than they might have done back home. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, how can British attitudes to the people of Germany in the immediate post-war period best be summed up? I mean, this is obviously off the back of a, a long and very bitter conflict between the two nations, and obviously you'd had the First World War earlier in the century. Was there any goodwill towards the people of Germany amongst those going over? I think probably the best way to sort of look at this is maybe to go a little bit back into the war itself. And one of the things I think we've possibly forgotten about Britain during the Second World War, you know, there's lots of these sort of strong images about what life was like in Britain at the time, the Blitz and the Home Front and all these sort of things. But there was a massive public debate about what to do with Germany. And it played out over a number of years and it was very sort of fiercely debated amongst you know various different groups. And essentially there were sort of two sides to this. There were those who saw Germany as kind of evil incarnate and this kind of long-term malign force in international politics. And basically that everything that had happened over the last 50 years in particular was the fault of Germany and Germans, and there was something peculiarly kind of malign about Germans. On the other hand, there were those that sort of saw it in a more sort of internationalist sense and and, and thought, you know, really the rise of Nazism was a, a product of particular circumstances that came about in that interwar period, the economic problems and all that sort of stuff. And basically those two kind of viewpoints were in opposition to one another, but it's certainly the former that kind of wins out by the end of the war. And that's certainly aided by some of the revelations of like the Holocaust and some of the, you know, truly awful atrocities that are kind of discovered in those final months. And so certainly for a majority, I think, of British troops and civilians that are in Germany, that in the occupation, their sense is, is quite a negative one. They're quite fearful. And that's actually kind of inspired partly by official regulations and provisions. So there's a real kind of division between occupiers and occupied. There's separate train carriages. And many of the Brits live a very separate life to the, the people they're occupying. You know, there's, there's lots of stories of people who very rarely actually encounter and, and, and actually meet the people that they're kind of meant to be governing in a way. And I think it's quite a shocking revelation to some people who go over and journalists and things like that. But that's not to say there wasn't, you know, a degree of goodwill in, in, in many instances. You know, people became friendly and some people were very enthusiastic about coming to sort of meet a uh, new people and, and, and really kind of became quite fond of Germany. And, and one good illustration of that is the fact that by the middle of the occupation, there are an estimated 10,000 marriages between Brits and Germans, something that actually at the very start had been completely banned and, and was not allowed, but in very, very short order, clearly there were people that were kind of finding, you know, the goodness of, in the Germans that maybe hadn't been told to them beforehand. So what did the Germans themselves make of their British occupiers? It's a great question, and I think a difficult one to answer just because of the sort of variety of different approaches to this. In many cases, the most interactions that Germans had were in particularly kind of quite hierarchical 
roles. So in lots of cases, the Germans were hired as kind of administrative staff in the British administration. So they would be typists and secretaries and translators and things like that. And in those roles, I think lots of the time, it depended on the office and the you know particular personnel they're with, but lots of the time, you know, people became quite friendly and kind of came to kind of enjoy the company and in, engage with the sort of cultural differences and those kind of things. So, you know, you get these quite fun stories of kind of the engagements in a kind of office place between people that, you know, were enemies a few months ago and now they're kind of working side by side. And it's obviously quite an interesting thing. But I think in lots of other cases, Germans were quite wary of the British occupiers because there was lots of rules and regulations that actually made their lives quite difficult. One obvious one was requisitioning. So the British went over and obviously needed accommodation and things like that. So they went around to sort of local communities and they would just take over houses and basically kick the Germans out and they would give them some help to sort of find new accommodation. But it was a obviously a very traumatic time for many of those involved. And those kind of interactions obviously soured relations to a point. Now, th- this definitely improves as time goes on, but Definitely in that first month or two, I think there was a certain kind of frigidity and and wariness between the two and something that only was really allowed to improve as circumstances around the occupation changed. I mean, how quickly did conditions start to improve for the people of Germany? It did take a while. I mean, the first... 18 months to two years are a very testing time for everyone and and particularly for the the Germans who really struggle for any of the resources that we would sort of see as the basic necessities of life. And above all food, there's there's a huge worldwide food shortage, but it's really, really acute in Germany and particularly in the British zone because this was a very industrial area. And so it hadn't really produced enough food historically to to feed itself and was used to sort of trading both externally and internally with some of the other parts of Germany. But because of the way that the agreements at the end of the war worked out, that sort of trading was either not allowed in a sort of external case or wasn't happening because of different approaches to reparations, essentially, and that the Soviet Union, whose their zone was quite agricultural, were not necessarily providing enough food in terms of trade that would get over to the to the British zone. And this really caused a, a real danger of, of actual famine in the British zone in that first year or so. And that took a while to change, and it really took a massive change of approach from the British in terms of building up the German economy and actually allowing a kind of some sort of rebuilding of the basis of a state to happen. And that really starts to happen sort of 47 onwards. No, the title of your book is inspired by a Noel Coward song of the same name, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit about that song and what it reveals about British attitudes to Germany at the time? Sure. So I've already touched a little bit on the uh, idea there was this kind of real division of British society. And this sort of plays out from sort of 1940 onwards, where you get this idea of the Germany's black record, which comes about from this sort of quite senior civil servant diplomat called Lord Van Sittart. And he basically says, you know, the Germans are all bad. They've caused five wars in the last 75 years. And, you know, really, we need to be seriously harsh with them. We need to deal with this, you know, very, very, very harshly. And it's Victor Galanch, who's kind of on the other side, and he's got this more internationalist idea of how things went along. And this plays out in the press, as, as I talked about earlier. And in 1943, it's got to the point of being such a kind of big public idea and a big kind of debate that Noel Coward, you know, really kind of popular entertainer at the time, decides to pen this song, Don't Let's Be Beastly to the Germans. And he's basically been very satirical and he's kind of 
taken his aim at, at Galange and these people who he describes as excessive humanitarians. And you know, he says they want to be they want to be kind to the Germans. And you know, we've had two wars with them. They've killed you know hundreds of thousands of British people. We shouldn't be being kind to them. We should be being beastly to them. But in his own kind of very trademark witty way, he kind of comes up with this song. And, and it's quite a remarkable kind of little uh, case study of, of what Britain's like at this time and quite how close to the surface some of those anxieties about, about Germany are. So he famously plays it at the uh, Theatre Royal Haymarket when he's kind of having a party at the end of a run of his plays. And in the audience is Winston Churchill, who absolutely loves it. Demanzi plays it three times on the night. And, you know, he's very much in favour of this view. He sort of sees this is this is the way forward. And that's the outlook that he definitely presses sort of throughout the war. But it actually becomes a real controversial song. And it's quite soon banned from BBC playlists. And that's because they got so many listener complaints, which kind of had a different sort of tenor of them. Some of them were people that you know, mistakenly thought this was a real plea to be nice to the Germans, which, you know, was absolutely not acceptable. Other people, you know, thought it was kind of offensive or essentially not right for someone to be sort of engaging with this this idea. But actually, I think the, the most likely explanation for why the BBC banned it was because of the use of language in the song, which maybe in a historical context, I can reuse the language, which was the word bloody, which... Nokawa had the temerity to include in his song and basically was completely disgusting to most people in Britain at that time, apparently. So the BBC decided to, to nix it from their playlists. Is there any evidence that this song shapes public opinion about Germany? I wouldn't necessarily say it shaped it, but I think it was a real reflection of where Britain was. And I think after two or three years of people debating about what to do with Germany and the idea of, you know, Britain may well win this war and come out on the right side of it, but what to do after that... It had developed to a point where actually the majority of the British public were in favour of quite a harsh settlement. And that was really what this song was trying to kind of underpin. So I wouldn't say it necessarily shaped it, but I think it did kind of give a reflection of where Britain was at at that point in time. Now, I wonder if you could introduce us to some of the people who worked on the ground in Germany. I mean, am I right in saying that one of the people sent there may have been the inspiration for... Miss Moneypenny of James Bond fame. That's correct. She was a uh, assistant to the Prime Minister, to Winston Churchill, throughout most of the war. And she would sort of be sent off on ahead of various conferences and political meetings and basically to kind of put together everything that needs to be done that, you know, takes to kind of organise a huge international conference. And so, you know, her records have been at the Potsdam Conference, which I kind of talk about in the book, a really, really interesting kind of insight into how hard these kind of things were to, to organise. You know, sending back lists of things that she needed, light bulbs and rugs and brooms and all sorts of things. And you just get a sense of how challenging this really could be. And then there's this fantastic story of how she sort of finishes with a few of her colleagues and they, they've gone through all this stuff for days on end of getting everything ready and making sure that, you know, every cushion is kind of in the right place and every chair is around the right table and every sign is completely perfect. And then the Soviet sort of equivalents of, of her kind of administrative body are there. And they're like, okay, let's go for a celebratory, you know, drink. And so they go off and she says, you know, the, the usual vodka marathon ensues. And then they sort of, her and her friend, you know, get out of there and they're like, right, we need to get back. And then they just ask a driver to sort of drive them around Berlin with their heads out the window desperately trying to get the fumes of alcohol out of their hair so they can meet the Prime Minister and not seem like they've been, you know, on a bit of a jolly all afternoon. But that's how it goes, I suppose. 
And was Roger Moore out there as well? He was. So he was. Uh, he came over in the regular kind of army and, and was working there for a, a few months. Then he had a what he described as an altercation with a tree in his jeep. Ended up in the hospital for a while, and I think used that as an opportunity to lobby for a transfer to the sort of entertainment troupe. And he was in a few plays, and they did tours around. Germany. Another famous figure that was in it was Peter Sellers, who supposedly, he was in the Air Force in Germany and, and supposedly sort of developed his famous characters like Major Bloodnock on the bases there. He'd dress up and kind of, you know, sort of take the mickey out of people and was sort of living the life of his future characters that we all kind of know. You know as you've alluded to, there's a lot of younger people out there at the time. I mean, how did they let their hair down when they were off duty and did that cause any problems? They certainly did let their hair down. It was uh, a remarkably sociable place. And so the the British occupiers in the main were really given provisions that no one could really dream of in Europe at that time. You know, they were some of the most well-provided-for people in terms of food and, in particular, alcohol, and as well as sort of things like entertainments and, and those sorts of things. And it really did become quite an issue, both in terms of discipline and kind of the the way the zone functioned, but also in terms of like the press response to what was going on in Germany and, and kind of how the occupation was playing out. And there was lots of reports of the kind of drunken antics that you might expect of, you know, groups of young people out in a foreign land, basically alcohol at incredibly low prices, incredibly huge rations of alcohol from the official sources, lots of parties, dances, all sorts of things going on. And it was a, a really, yeah, remarkable time. There's a, there's a brilliant story from a young woman that I feature in the book where she's never had a drink. She goes to Germany. She's 21. She's from she's from Tyneside. And she goes over to Germany and she's never had a drink. And after sort of months of being sort of teased and made fun of, oh, come on, you know, have a drink, have a drink. She's like, well, okay, right. I'll try some champagne. Has a few glasses of champagne. She's like, I don't really like this, you know. It all tastes like bitter salts kind of thing. But, you know, that's the sort of pressure that was on a lot of people. And that's kind of a fun story. But there were certainly some slightly less fun stories of you know, fights and altercations and, and people get into serious trouble because they'd really had several too many drinks, not just one. I know it's very easy to generalise, but was there an overriding sentiment of what these people thought of their surroundings and how much they got out of the experience of being in Germany? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's quite a mixed bag. I, I think for a lot of the soldiers, they were basically just bored and they wanted to get home and the process of what they call demobilization was was quite a challenging one and, and a long wait and people were basically just stuck in germany hoping to get back to friends and family they might have been in the army for most of the war they've not really been home very much and they just you know really wanted to to get back but for other people who'd sort of volunteered to go out there it could be quite an uplifting experience and, and, and a sense of rebuilding the world and, and doing a you know you're doing your bit for kind of the future and then you know your generation or the younger generations either way it might be and i think reflecting on it some people had a you know a real sense of kind of this was a a meaningful experience but but i think Probably more commonly, people felt like it was a little bit of a missed opportunity. There was a general sort of sense in the newspapers, and I think amongst the staff as well, this was a little bit of a misstep that Britain had kind of failed to kind of take advantage of being a victor at the end of the war and that the occupation hadn't really gone according to plan. And so there was a, a sort of sense amongst some of the staff in their papers and their diaries, you know, this really could have been something remarkable. And while it did kind of have some you know, positive aspects, it hadn't really gone as planned. I wonder if, can you just elaborate on that a little bit then? What, I mean, what were they expecting and how were those expectations not met? 
Well, I think there was a sense through the occupation and the the problems it dealt to, particularly the British, it kind of exposed Britain's weakness on the world stage. So, you know, within a, a couple of years, it was very evident that Britain really couldn't afford to kind of maintain the occupation as it had been planned in 1945. Now, that was partly because what had been planned in 1945 didn't really work. But of course, the Americans and the Soviets were more able to kind of take some of the you know problems and the losses that were happening at that time and sort of deal with them and sort of see how the international scene was to play out. But Britain really didn't have this sort of time to spare. And I think you see a sense in the newspapers and amongst people at the time that this really kind of was Britain's decline. And this was happening in Germany at the time. And it certainly meant that the massive change in policy towards a more kind of reconciliatory and sort of rebuild in Germany for lots of people who, of course, you know, had gone through the war and gone through two world wars, perhaps, and had a very negative view of Germany. It seemed like this was a kind of a failure because they didn't still didn't really trust the Germans and they didn't really trust that, you know, rebuilding this country was a good policy. Now, of course, we look back in hindsight now and think, actually, you know, this kind of worked out quite well. And it was quite, you know, lots of the policies did actually end up making sense. And, you know, Germany developed into a democracy and, and all that. But at the time, people were certainly quite down on it and felt that, you know, maybe things had turned in a direction that had gone away from Britain's control. And this was, you know, part of a bigger issue in terms of Britain's to decline on the world stage. But what were the successes? I mean, if you could you know, point out two or three areas in which real progress was made between 1945 and 1949, I mean, what would they be? Sure. So I think a, a real headline, one or two, would be Volkswagen, which is, the, of course, a car company that you all know. And, and this is really a kind of British success story from the occupation. So in the summer of 45, the, the Americans take over a sort of planned city, which was kind of the, the city for the strength through joy car, which was, you know, as we may well know, the kind of Volkswagen that was envisioned in the 30s in the Third Reich as this kind of people's car and never really came to fruition in terms of actually being a civilian vehicle but had been the factory that had been built was turned into a kind of armament plant but when it was taken over in that summer it was you know basically bombed to smithereens and there wasn't you know much there and it was handed over to the British because it was in the British zone and there was lots of pressures basically to wind it up and get rid of it you know this isn't really worth spending our time on and the Soviets were pressing to have basically any surviving material sent to them as reparations and there was a bit of a kind of uncertainty what to do but certainly most people were pressing for this to be curtailed and actually it was a, a, a young major Ivan Hurst he went over and he was kind of given responsibility for this sort of factory and planned city. It was rapidly, they changed its name to Wolfsburg. He decided to start rebuilding the factory. He managed to persuade the British occupiers to order some as staff cars, as well as the German post office, which they were trying to rebuild at the time. And at that point, it starts to look, oh, maybe there's a chance here. Maybe we can do something here. So he intentionally shows, you know, people from Renault the worst bits to sort of think, oh, yeah, this is, there's nothing, nothing can be done here. There's no point in you taking this over. The various British car manufacturers come over and they're like, you're an idiot. Why? You can't, you can't do anything here. This is, you know, foolish behavior. You know, this is, there's no hope, basically. And of course, as we all know, the story is one of Volkswagen becoming, you know, this huge international success story. By 1954, Volkswagen is the fourth largest car company in the world. And by the 70s, the Beetle is the best-selling car of all time. So he had something about him, I think, Ivan Hurst. And another really interesting example is the magazine Der Spiegel, which, you know, again, today we probably all know is this kind of fantastic resource for kind of independent journalism and, and, and really interesting investigative pieces in particular. Uh, and again, that is 
a product of the British zone, and, and in particular, John Chelliner, who was a, a British officer, was given responsibility because the British took over, you know, all parts of life in, in Germany at this point. And he was in charge of this kind of the media of a certain part of the British zone. And he decided to kind of craft this magazine that would kind of do reporting on the zone. And in time, it, it developed into Desch Beagle and became this real sort of success story of kind of democracy and, and kind of journalism and very much had the markings of the British zone on it from the very beginning. And would I be right in saying that the British presence in Germany contributed to the invention of currywurst? It did. Well, this is the story. And there's lots of different stories. Of course, it's something of such repute. There's always lots of different stories about the origins. But yeah, the if anyone's have been to Berlin, the, the currywurst with the fries, the sausage, tomato ketchup and curry powder, you know, if you think about it, it's very much kind of indicative of the occupation. So you've got the ketchup and the fries is very much this kind of American introduction. The, the verse, the sausage is the, the sort of German element. And the curry powder was, of course, the British kind of contribution to this. And the story goes that some British soldiers in Berlin were looking to trade their resources for some extra alcohol supplies, which is a very, very believable story. And they uh, traded their, their packs of curry powder with uh, a woman named Herta Hovig, and she crafted the first ever curry verst. I hope that is true, because that's a pretty cool story. And finally, Daniel, I mean, what would you say... In terms of the relationship between the two nations, Britain and Germany, what would you say was the, the greatest legacy of those four years in the immediate post-war period? It's an interesting question. I, I think it's a real sort of momentous shift in the relations between the two nations, and it really is this kind of sort of foe-to-friend time. And that plays out first in a political sense, and I think it does take a bit longer to develop in terms of like the sort of person-to-person reconciliation. But I think in some ways, in those terms, the legacy of those first four years is the beginnings of that process. Because I think British and German people, even if it is just those British people who, you know, were part of the occupation, start to see that not all the Germans are, are bad and not everyone is quite so malign as they've been told during the war and actually start to kind of get to know these people and, and people start to engage with one another on, on the sort of basis of friendship and, and kind of recognising that the, there's lots of shared attributes and, you know, there's, there's all these great stories of people kind of sharing full football games and having, you know, drinks with one another and, you know, falling in love with one another. And there's all these amazing stories of people basically being people and and not really worrying too much about whether they were British, German or whatever. And I think that in lots of ways is a a kind of remarkable legacy and one that certainly played out in in the decades since. That was historian and writer Daniel Cowling. His book, Don't Let's Be Beastly to the Germans, is out now, published by Head of Zeus. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.